All right. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to a couple of different places this morning. First of those is Exodus chapter 9. You'll want to mark that with something. Genesis, Exodus chapter 9. And then after you get that, go with me to Romans chapter 9. I want to read to you verses 14 through 23. Now, if you found Romans 9, go ahead and stand with me as I read the word of our Lord and then remain standing when we're finished and Jeremy and Hannah will lead us in song. And let me remind you that before I read that this is the word of our Lord. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Again, we come to Romans 9 this morning. And I'm being cautious and careful and slow as we walk through this because these are some of the most profound passages that you're going to find in the New Testament. And I want us to understand them. The Lord gave us these passages in order that we might know Him more, that we might understand how He works more, and in response to understanding those things, that we might glorify Him more, that we might worship Him more. Now, there is a specific reason, though, that Paul wrote Romans 9. I know he has the greater view in mind of what God is doing because he ends Romans 11 with the doxology there where he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So Paul understands the ultimate purpose of Romans 9, but Paul also pins Romans 9 to defend his gospel. Now this is what I've said for the last couple of weeks and this is what I really want you to understand as we move from 8 to 9. Because when Paul finishes Romans 8, he's really finished with his gospel. 
He's come to the highest truths and the highest things that we trust in, and that is the sovereignty of God in salvation. When he comes to the end of eight, there's nothing more to offer God because he goes on to the love of or nothing more to say about what God has offered to us through the gospel than to talk about how we cannot be separated from the love of God. Everything that God has done, he has done completely and entirely on our behalf and our salvation. We totally trust in the gospel because the gospel runs according to God's will. Every part of our salvation is according to God's plan. From our election in eternity past to our glorification in eternity future, we rest in what God has done and what He continues to do for His people. Romans 8, right? But as you move into Romans 9, there's the question that pops up. If everything goes according to God's plan, certainly the nation of Israel was well within God's plan. And so, Paul, you have to answer the question, what in the world happened to Israel, right? Especially even at the moment that Paul writes this letter, the majority of Israel, even continues until this day, still does not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's got to answer that question. Has the word of God failed? Has the promises of God failed? Has God himself failed? Paul immediately answers that in verse 6, not at all. Because what you're not realizing is all Israel is not Israel. All physical Israel is not the true Israel. All physical Israel is not the spiritual Israel. Paul wants us to see that even within the nation of Israel, God has worked to make a distinction even within that nation. And he says, let me give you two examples, for instance. The first example is Abraham. Abraham had two sons, right? Ishmael and Isaac. But God chose to work his redemptive plan only through one of those boys, Isaac. Now, immediately you and I begin to just kind of reason that in our own hearts. And we go, well, sure, it was Isaac. I have no problem with it being Isaac. They wouldn't even have Isaac if it were not for the sovereignty of God. How does a woman in her 90s and a man 100 years old have a baby? I mean, for goodness, of course, he chose to work his redemptive plan through Isaac. He's the miracle child. And so we reason that and we go, I have no problem with him picking Isaac over Ishmael. None whatsoever. Ishmael, that whole thing was sketchy anyway, right? What even Sarah's son. So I'm good with Isaac. But then Paul says, well, let me give you another example. I don't think this one will set too well in your heart. How about the two boys that Isaac had? They came by natural and normal means, upstanding means. Nothing sketchy about this. A husband and a wife had twins. And yet before they were ever born, God chose to work his redemptive plan through one of those boys, not Esau, but Jacob was in. Now that one doesn't set too well with our hearts. In fact, never has that set too well with anybody's hearts because that's difficult to reason. I was trying to pronounce his name with Cody before service start, Chrysostom. He was one of the first commentators of the New Testament. Well, yeah, of the New Testament and Old Testament. He was the first one to make some comments about those things that God had done. And his comment was this. Well, obviously, God knew that Jacob was going to be the more noble man. Origen came along the next century later, and he was, a, he was a commentator too, and he followed suit. And he said, obviously, 
God knew that Jacob was going to be a, nor, more nor, uh, a more noble man, so God chose Jacob over Esau. That's what made the distinction. But when you say that, you're ignoring what Paul is really making every effort to pull you away from any distinction that can be seen between those two boys. Notice what Paul writes in Romans, uh, Romans 9 verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born, and he could have stopped there, but Paul goes on, and had not done anything, anything good or bad. And he could have stopped there, but he goes on, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand. Could have stopped there. I'll go on. Not because of works, but because of God who calls. In other words, Paul says, I'll put four phrases in here that completely deconstruct your idea that there was something unique about Jacob and not Esau. In fact, if you've been diligent enough to read the stories about both of those boys, as I said last week, neither one of them was worth very much. I mean, both of them came with reasons that you'd want to beat their backsides often. I think Jacob even more so. I mean, his name actually does mean deceiver. And he was very talented at deceiving and lying even to his own father. And so when we look at this, we go, you know, this doesn't set too well with me. And so we strain and we struggle to try to explain this. But Paul said, no, you have to understand in verse 14 or, or verse 15 rather, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so we come to the first question in Paul's gospel that people want to argue against. Well, if this is how God works, if he's going to pick Jacob over Esau, then my immediate response is this. God is unjust. I mean, if you can't find the reasons within the boys, God's simply not being fair if he's going to do what God wants to do. And Paul responds with that. How in the world can you say that God is unjust? Because when God revealed Himself to Moses, the first thing that He revealed Himself to be was a God of mercy. And I told you last week, that was the first adjective, if you will, that God used to describe Himself. I'm a God of mercy. And then He goes on to tell Moses, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to act in perfect harmony with my character. I'm going to be a God of mercy. So there's no way possible that you could ever open your mouth and go, God is unjust because God says, I've always done what I told you I would do to begin with. How is that unjust? When I revealed myself to you, I said, I am like this. And when I acted, I acted perfectly and in accordance with what I said. Paul says, therefore, you cannot say that God is unjust in any way. He told you beforehand how He would be. And so we have this in verse 15 that should kind of settle our hearts. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he goes on in 16, Paul makes this comment. So then, after he quotes scripture, it does not depend on man, but on God who has mercy. Now the positive side of that we really like. I am so thankful that God is a God of mercy. As I reflect back on this week that I just had to walk through as a sinner, I stand before you totally, 100% in the mercies of God. And if you're impressed with me in any shape or form, you're wrong. 
My life is 110% based on the mercies of God, not my willing, not my running. I testify. His mercy. And when you look throughout the Bibles, we see an amazing list of men who were the product of the mercies of God. I like how Paul uses it in 1 Timothy. He uses it as a verb. Paul says, I was mercied. That's what God did to me. I was mercied. He says it to Timothy twice. And you go back and you look through the text and you see all these men that got mercied. And when I use that phrase, I got mercied, what I mean is you understood the redemption. You, you've looked to Christ. You've repented from your sins. And now you're a child of God. That's how I'm using that word. That's how Paul used that word. Mercied. Think about Adam. Should have died in Genesis 3. God said he would die the day he sinned. But did he die? Oh no, he lived a long life. And he lived a long life that was fruitful to the glory of God. And the only thing that you can say about that is, boy, you ought to not have been here. You should have died in Genesis 3. You got mercied big time. And you go on to Noah. God killed every man, woman, and child on the planet save one. And we want to look at Noah. Man, he must have been some more dude. God killed them all but one. And we want to find the reason within Noah, but the reason is not in there. It's in the God who mercied him, you understand. And you tell people that and they still go, well, you know, I guess I'm like Noah. I realize that millions of people died in the flood. I realize that like everybody but one, but I, I'm, I guess I'm more like the one. No, the difference in Noah was he got mercied by the Lord. You look at Abraham. I mean, he was worshiping idols when God called him. And I do realize that mercy of God so worked in him that he walked up that mountain and was going to sacrifice Isaac. But if you will consider some other moments in his life, I mean, he did the most embarrassing thing for us as men. He threw his wife under the bus twice to save his own hide. He said, hey, she's not my wife, dude, that's my sister, because they didn't want them to kill him. That's embarrassing. What man would do that? And so we look at Abraham, we go, dude, you got mercy is what you got. I'm impressed with God, not with what you've done. You look at Moses, he didn't even want to go. God called him to go be a hero and he goes, I don't want to go. I stutter. Can't, 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 can't you call somebody, somebody, somebody else? That was his response. And even after he goes, he takes the name of the Lord in vain, so to speak, and strikes the rock twice and says, does me and God have to take care of you people basically all the time? And yes, this, this that dishonored God. He didn't even go into the promised land. And you look at his life, and, and even though all the wonderful and great things he has done and the testimony that he leaves us in the Old Testament, the only thing that you can say about Moses is, dude, you got mercy is what you got. You flat out got mercy. What about David? I don't even need to say anything about that, do I? Mercy. 
And it wasn't just those lists of men. There was a great many women who got mercied. I mean, even though Sarah was in her 90s and even though she laughed at the Lord, God mercied her. Think about Rahab. She wasn't even in the family, man. She was a prostitute that lived on the other side of the tracks. And the only thing that you can say about Rahab is she just flat out got mercied by God. Think about Ruth, who came from an immoral peoples, again, outside of the family, mercied. You think about Hannah, can't have a baby. God says, mercy, you're going to have Samuel, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And what about Mary? Mary got so mercy that she had to sit down and write a song about it. Of how amazing the mercy of God had been displayed toward her in her life. Mary would flat out tell you, hey, it is not me. It is totally the mercy of God. In fact, there was an entire group of people that are known in the Old Testament by the name the remnant. And Paul continues to refer to them that way in Romans 9, 10, and 11 as the remnant. And I assume we will in heaven. If we did it in the old, we did it in the new. I don't know that that will ever change. So if you meet anybody from Israel in heaven who turned from their sins and put their faith in Christ, I guess we'll refer to them. You must be part of the remnant. Yes, I am a part of the people who received the mercies of God. The Lord has certainly not held back in displaying His mercy toward men. And so when Paul says this in 9.15, we love this. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But there's a little bit of a negative flavor in that. I mean, you catch just a little bit of an aroma that, hey, man, that's not all positive right there. And Paul goes, well, that's exactly right. Let me just clear that up to you in verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And you're like, well, that implies there are men who have not received the mercy of God. And Paul's like, now you're catching on. There is equally a list of men who have not received the mercy of God. You think about Cain. Cain's the example that Jude uses in the last book right before Revelation. He said, don't be like this dude. And you're like, didn't Cain receive mercy? Well, let's think about this, what Cain got before he struck down Abel. All right, son, here you are. If you go this way, sin will kill you. If you go this way, you'll do what's right in the Lord. Cain goes, all right, that way I will go. And off he goes and strikes down his brother in Jude's like, don't be that dude. And we understand he didn't get that mercy that we're talking about this morning. Think about Balaam. Balaam couldn't open his mouth, save for the fact that he would bless the people of God, yet he received money to curse the people of God. He couldn't even do what he wanted to do. And yet he fulfilled the purposes of God and he was not mercied by God. Every time he opened his mouth to curse, nothing but blessing would come out. He couldn't even do what he wanted to do. When you think about Goliath, there is no record of the mercy of God in the life of Goliath. Yet if we did not have the story of Goliath, if Goliath did not play his role, we wouldn't understand the gospel as well as we do. 
The entire nation of God's people standing on the sidelines, too afraid to lift a finger to do anything to rescue themselves. And yet here goes this boy trotting out on a battlefield with a sling and a stone. The, spo- the story's supposed to be unrealistic. And it is. Because when you look at how God saved His people who were too afraid to lift a finger to be able to save themselves, here comes a Savior. And how does He save His people? By dying on their behalf. The story's unrealistic. But without Goliath, we don't understand the Gospel. Goliath was not mercied, yet we see the purposes of God accomplished in his life. It's all kinds of people. Wicked kings... Ahab, Manasseh before him. There's women, Jezebel, not mercied yet accomplished the purposes of God. When we come into the New Testament, what about Judas? Mercied? I don't think so. Did he accomplish the purposes of God? Probably as well as anybody in the New Testament. He accomplished the purposes of God. He certainly played his role in the redemptive story and he was chosen for that role. Listen to Jesus' words in John 6. There are some of you, Jesus said, who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. Jesus always knew. And He chose Judas for that very purpose because He knew that the role that He would play in glorifying the Father and accomplishing the Gospel. Jesus said this in His prayer before He goes to Calvary, While I was with them, Father, I was keeping them in Your name which You have given Me. I guarded them, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus on the way to Calvary said, Hey, I kept them all. Just like You told Me to. They're all safe except that one. That one that's been ordained from all eternity to betray the Son of Man, I did not keep him. He has not been mercy. And you think, well, there's no way possible God could ever hold Judas accountable for his actions if he was chosen for the role. And yet, listen to what Jesus says in Mark 15. Mark 14, 21 rather. The Son of Man will go just as it stands written about Him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Chosen by God for the role, yet held accountable for the role, and we know He chose Himself to betray the Son of Man. Isn't the sovereignty of God and human responsibility amazing, well beyond our comprehension, yet true in Scripture? But Paul wants us to consider another man who did not receive the mercies of God, and that was Pharaoh. This is a man that played the role as well as Moses played the role in the redemptive story. The only difference between the two men is one got mercied, And the other one never met the mercies of God. Look at Romans 9 verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose. In other words, God had a purpose for Pharaoh. And you remember well who he was. Pharaoh was the man that the Lord had put in charge over all of Egypt. 
Pharaoh was the one who held all of God's people in captivity. And Pharaoh's father and grandfather and I guess great-grandfather and I guess great-great-grandfather was responsible for the ones holding God's people in captivity well over 400 years. In fact, 80 years prior, Pharaoh's father, Pharaoh, was the one who threw the Israelite boys in the river Nile to put them to death. It was this Pharaoh that God says, I've got a purpose for you, right? So Moses is the one who was called through the burning bush, and Moses is the one that had to go through Pharaoh to see God's people rescued. Pharaoh played his role. Moses played his role. Pharaoh played his role without the mercies of God, and Moses played his role within the mercies of God. Moses made it through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh died at the bottom of the Red Sea. And they both glorified God, and they both accomplished the purposes of God in their day. Notice verse 17 again, and you'll see what the Lord says, For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. What an incredible purpose. Can you imagine God telling you that? I got a purpose for you. Purpose-driven life. Rick Warren, here it is. I'm going to demonstrate my power in your name. Or I'm going to demonstrate my power in you, and my name will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And it's fascinating. God did exactly that. Because when they got to the promised land, they were talking about what God had done to Pharaoh. Pharaoh thoroughly fulfilled the purposes of God. He had a credible purpose for his life, but none of that would happen by way of mercy. All of it would happen by way of judgment. Now, when you think about this, people really want to try and soften the blow of the sovereignty of God in Pharaoh's life. They don't like this at all. Because the sovereignty of God in Pharaoh's life takes on a negative form and that makes us very uncomfortable. We don't like things we can't explain. I'll give you a really good example that I've given you before. If I said so-and-so died with COVID about two or three years ago, you would say immediately, well, did they have anything else wrong with them? And if you went, oh yeah, they were in poor health. They were a diabetic. They were 200 pounds. Okay, okay. I immediately feel better. So-and-so died with COVID. How old were they? Because I need to feel better about, oh, they were 90. Oh, that makes sense. I immediately feel better about this. That's how we are as fallen people. We want to feel better about things that we can't explain. And so when we hear that God used Pharaoh in a negative sovereign sense to accomplish his purposes, the church is always running directions to try to explain that. And one of the ways they try to explain that is found in Exodus 8.15. If you've got your Bibles there, I've got to send you to Exodus anyway. Don't lose Romans 9. We'll come back, but run to Exodus 8.15 and let me show you this. Exodus 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief from the frogs, and if you have the subtitles over chapter 8, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, 
He hardened his heart and did not listen to Moses and Aaron as the Lord had said. And you go, okay, there's my relief. God only hardened Pharaoh because Pharaoh first hardened his heart. And that all of a sudden makes me feel better about the sovereignty of God. You know, Pharaoh, if you hadn't hardened your heart, if you'd have been sensitive to God, maybe God wouldn't have hardened your heart because let me tell you, I'd never harden my heart toward God. Really? I mean, are you going to abandon Romans 3 just like that? Have you forgotten that there's no one who seeks for God? Have you forgotten that no one does good, not even one? Have you forgotten that none are righteous? Does that really make you feel better about what God did because Pharaoh hardened his heart first? It shouldn't. In fact, that's not what happened at all. If you have your Bibles open in Exodus, go back to chapter 4. And you'll see what God did before Moses ever even met Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 4, look at verse 19. Exodus 4 verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are now dead. So Moses took his wife, his sons, and he mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. In other words, we're packing up the van and we're moving back to Egypt. Notice what God says in verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God's like, hey, before the deal even begins, you need to understand what I'm going to do in Pharaoh's life. I'm going to be the one to harden his heart, and he's going to accomplish my purposes, and you're going to accomplish my purposes, and my people will be delivered from the hands of Pharaoh, and it's going to be absolutely awesome, and they will glorify my name throughout the whole world forever and ever, and it will be a wonderful demonstration of my gospel. And this is what we're going to do. There's nothing there to soften the blow for you. There's nothing there to remove if you are offended by that. There's nothing there to remove the offense. Can you really think of a man who has not hardened his heart toward God before the mercies of God come into his life? I can't. I'm not. So I can't think of a one. In fact, Paul is not trying to soften anything. In fact, I would say that he grabs the back of our neck and shoves our noses down into the sovereignty of God rather than giving us relief. Turn over to Exodus 9 and let me show you something. So Exodus 9, but be really quick to be able to go back to Romans 9. And I want to show you what Paul does on purpose. Okay, Exodus 9, look at verse 13. These are the words of our Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I want you to get up early in the morning. I want you to go and stand before Pharaoh and say to him. In other words, Moses, I want you to do is say exactly to Pharaoh what I'm about to tell you. All right. Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there's no one like me in all the earth. Verse 15. 
For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. Verse 16, But indeed for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. And he uses this phrase in verse 16, I have allowed you to remain. Now listen, this is what God says. Verse 15, you know you should be dead, Pharaoh. I coulda, I woulda, and I shoulda, but I haven't yet because I got a purpose for you. So I have allowed you to remain in order to accomplish my purposes and have my name proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now I want you to notice what Paul says because Paul changes that in Romans 9. Now you only pick this up if you have the NAS. If you're working with the ESV or the KJV, you're not going to get this because they go back and they change this to what Paul says. But go to Romans, notice chapter 9, verse 17. Again, if you got the NAS, you're going to see it quick. Paul says in verse 17, For this purpose I allowed you to remain. No, he didn't say that. Paul intensifies it. He says, I raised you up. In other words, it's not so much of a passive phrase because in Exodus, Moses communicates in a passive way. Pharaoh, God says, I should have killed you by now. I could have killed you by now. And it would have been just and right for me to do that. But I've let you live long enough to accomplish everything that I want to accomplish before I pass judgment on you and put you to death. You get to Romans 9 and Paul says, I'm going to tighten this a little bit. And Paul's absolutely free to do that in the Spirit. And he says, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose. It's not I allowed you to live. I have created you for this purpose. I have put you in the place that you're in for this purpose to make my power known and to have my name proclaimed throughout the nations. Paul's like, I'm not going to soften this for you. I'm going to actually make this more difficult for you to swallow. And then notice what Paul follows that statement up with in verse 18. Just in case you missed what Paul's trying to do, he says the most difficult thing that you'll find in Romans 9. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Paul's like, that's my conclusion of everything from verse 6. You want to know about this God? He mercies whom he desires and he hardens whomever he wishes. That's how you can literally translate that. Mercy, whomever I wish. Harden, whomever I wish. It turns out all this talk that we have back and forth in the church about the free will. Let me tell you who has free will. God has free will. And He exercises His free will according to His will. The psalmist says He does everything that He wants. That's the God that we worship, right? So listen, it is true that God sometimes exercises His mercy toward people who deserve the judgment and wrath of God. And when He does that, we like it. But it is equally true that God sometimes exercises His prerogative not to extend mercy toward people who deserve the judgment of God. Sometimes He even, in this case with Pharaoh, He hardens their heart to accomplish the purposes of God. 
And when I'm talking about hardened, I'm talking about he renders them spiritually insensitive to truth. He did it to the nation of Israel. He hardened their heart, according to Isaiah, because God was going to accomplish God's purposes. He hardened Pharaoh's heart because God was going to accomplish God's purposes. But don't miss what I just said. It is true that God extends mercy to people who do not deserve it. And it's equally true that God does not extend mercy to those same group of people. Our problem is, we really think that we deserve the mercies of God. One of my elders talked to a lady this week, last week. And this were her words to him. I've never done anything to deserve the judgment of God or hell. Oh, I've done some things wrong, but I've never done anything that bad. Do you realize that's where you start? I don't know how far we've brought you along in the teaching and the preaching of God's word, but every single person is of that opinion. I've done some things wrong. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I willingly confess that I've done some things wrong, but now, hey, I, I hadn't done anything that bad. I know some people who have, we're going to say. But now listen, I haven't done anything bad enough to deserve the judgment of God. And because you're there, if you are, you can't understand the mercies of God. But if you understand that you do, in fact, do deserve the judgment of God, the mercies of God is the greatest joys of your life. Because you're like, hey, wait a minute. There's no way that I deserve the mercy and the grace of God. Yet here I find myself sitting in church this morning, being fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ in every way, shape and form. I love the worship of God. I love the word of God. I hate my sin. I love obedience. Where did all this come from? The mercies of God. Because He mercied you somewhere along the way. And it's not because He looked back throughout your life like Jacob and Esau in some fantasy story where He said, Oh, I choose Jacob because he's more noble. Paul's like, No, 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 times four. That's not why God chose Jacob. He did it in such a way so you can't say that. And so we look at your own life and you realize, wait a minute, here I sit in the mercies of God, knowing the name that is above every name, and willingly bend my knee in worship and repentance and faith to Him. Boy, I got mercied. There's nothing else that I can say. I simply got mercied somewhere along the way. And I gladly and joyfully give my life to Him. Do you realize that's where Paul is taking us? Look at Romans 12. Turn over to Romans 12, verse 1. Notice with me, Therefore I urge you, he's coming off of 9, 10, and 11, the sovereignty of God. I urge you, brothers, by the what? The mercies of God. See what Paul's doing? He's leading us somewhere. Now what are you supposed to do? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul's going somewhere with this. But he's got to get you to see that the reason you're, you're where, you at, where you're at right now is solely due to the mercies of God. And you have to realize that that mercy is not extended to everybody. 
I heard a preacher the other day. I was like, man, he, he did a good job communicating that. I couldn't believe he communicated that. He said, you do realize that probably the majority of the people right now on the planet will live and die and never hear the name. I don't know what the other crowd does with the free will stuff, but the majority of the people of the over 8 billion people live on the planet. The majority will live and die and never hear the name. And you heard the name. I heard the name. I've got no right. I've got no more rights than the man that lives on the other side of the planet who will live and die and never hear the name. I've got no more right than he does. I'm not better than he is, not by a long shot. Man, I've met Buddhists. They are more moral than, I guess, any American I've ever met in my life, if you just want to say generally speaking. I couldn't get on the bus lest the man would immediately pop up and go like this and want me to sit. Make me sit down. Couldn't walk down the street. They want to give you something. Just give you something. They're not there for money. They just want to give you something. I deserve God's mercy more than that? No. In fact, I do not. And yet, I got to hear the name. And I struggle with sin. And I, I struggle with giving my life to Christ in worship. What in the world is wrong with the church? Are we really going to take advantage of knowing the name? Are we really going to take advantage of the mercies of God that's been given to us? Are we really going to devote our life to work and hobbies and everything else in this life? Are we going to give ourselves over to sin? Is that what we're going to do as the children of God? Can we not recognize that we've been mercied from tip to toe, from beginning to end, and gladly and willingly lay our lives down for the glory of God? I mean, literally, what more is it that you want? Now, I know I'm being hard on y'all this morning like never, but I'm being hard on myself because I'm preaching in the mirror. I'm literally preaching in the mirror this week. Because I'm a man who's been mercied. And I'm most, most undeserving among us, but I've been mercied. And I know that I'm speaking to a people who have been mercied. And Paul's taking us to that place. Hey, dude, listen. In view of the mercies of God, you need to present yourself to the God who has mercied you and give your life to Him. Now, I've got to go on the text because Paul's going to bring us to 19 in the second wrong thinking. Because if all that I just said was true, here's what the lost man's going to say in his heart. Oh, well, you will say to me then, Paul says, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? If God mercies who he wants and he hardens who he wants, throw your hands up in the air. What does it matter? That's the response of the lost man. They cannot come to terms with that. And that's simply called fatalism. But Paul's going to answer that question in three ways. Notice with me verse 20. Here's Paul's first answer about that attitude. What does it matter if God's sovereign in salvation? Paul's like, check your attitude, man. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Really? You're going to stick your chest out. You're going to tilt that head back. And you're going to go, well, God, if you're going to do it, what, if you're going to do it like that, what in the world does anything matter anyway? 
And Paul's like, be careful with that attitude. You are speaking to your creator. In fact, Job kind of gets hung up because when God finally speaks to Job, here's God's words to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's a poetic way as, as God demonstrates to Job. Wait a minute. Did I just hear a fool open his mouth? Because I thought I heard somebody speak without wisdom and knowledge. And Paul's like, you're really going to throw up your hands and go, what does it matter? God's going to do what God wants to do. Paul's like, hmm. You really going to address God in that way? And then he gives us an illustration in 20 and 21 to help us understand. And he uses a very common one. The thing molded will not actually say to the one who molded it or the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? I mean, does the potter have a right over the clay or not to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? I mean, does the potter not have the right over the clay? Does the vase shout at the potter as it spins on the wheel? What in the world are you doing with me? And you're like, no, that doesn't happen. Then why in the world would we answer back to God, what in the world are you doing with my life? Paul's like, that's not the way that we approach our Creator. Let me give you the flip side of this because I just can't help myself. How does the children of God respond to these things? Oh, let's see. I know about how you created everything. I know about how you redeemed everything. I know how much you've loved everything. You gave your only son. So when I come to Romans 9... I'm not going to argue with you. I might uh, understand how these things fit together, but I can tell you what I am going to do. I'm going to praise you. That's what I'm going to do. I've got enough information in my heart and mind to trust you, which means I've got enough information in my heart and mind to worship you. I'm certainly not going to argue with you. That's how the child of God should respond to the sovereignty of God in salvation. Certainly not with questioning His character where in the Bible has God's character ever been questioned? Has it not been perfect from page one? And Paul's like, why would you even ask that? Why wouldn't you simply trust in what he is doing? So Paul's like, okay, I'll explain it further for you. And he gives us some of the most profound understanding in 22 and 23 that you're really going to find. In fact, Understanding what little I do, I can't even believe it's in here. But Paul's like, let me explain to you further how God works. Notice verse 22. What if God, willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which God prepared beforehand for glory. Now, I realize this is a little bit difficult, but if we just start piecing it, we'll see. There's two vessels here, and you need to understand there's one vessel of mercy and there's one vessel of wrath. We're not talking about nations anymore. We've whittled this down to people. Paul's like, let's talk about people here. There's vessels of mercy and there's vessels of wrath. And notice the purpose of the vessels of wrath in verse 22. They serve the purpose of demonstrating the judgment of God. 
although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath. In other words, Paul's saying, let me take you back to Pharaoh. Because if it had not been for Pharaoh, we would not comprehend the judgment of God. If it had not been for Pharaoh, we would not understand the wrath of God nor the power of God. Remember those ten plagues? If it had not been for Pharaoh, we would not have seen the demonstration of God's power in deliverance. And if you want to get some idea of what it's going to be like when Christ returns and we see the power displayed by God in our grand deliverance, you could look back at Egypt and you could look back at Pharaoh and you could see what God did there so you could trust in what God is going to do when Christ returns. It's going to be an amazing display of the power of God. And we've got this phrase here that most people misunderstand because again, they want to soften the blow. But notice what it says in verse 22. He endured with much patience vessels of wrath. And they say, oh, God's patient, not willing that any should perish. So he gave Pharaoh time to repent. That's not what that's talking about. Remember what Moses said in Exodus 15 and 16 of chapter 9? I should have put you to death by now. And I would have been just in doing it. But I've been patient. Because I'm going to accomplish my purposes with you. So I've allowed you to remain. In other words, God says, I was patient with Pharaoh letting the rebellion rise. And I was patient with Pharaoh so people, my people might see my power. If we can understand that in the context of the church today, where's the Lord Jesus Christ at? I mean, where is He? How much longer is this thing going to go? And God's like, I'm being patient toward my vessels of wrath. Rebellion's going to rise, and the rebellion is going to be like nothing you've never seen before. The rebellion and hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rise to a place that we've never seen before. It's going to be unbelievable in our eyes. And yet at the same time, the mercy and the grace and the power on behalf of God's people is going to rise to a place that we've never seen before, before our eyes. It's going to be awesome. And God is patiently waiting in order that He might demonstrate the glory of His name and His great power before His people. That's the negative side of the, these things, but there's a positive side of these things. It's the vessels of mercy. And notice verse 23. And He did so. He was patient with the vessels of wrath. He was demonstrating His wrath and His power in their lives. And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. In other words, that's the right hand that I was just talking to you about. He's magnifying His mercy that you and I are going to experience one day. Hey, when we get to glory, we're, we're not even going to have the words to describe how awesome, how amazing, how wonderful, how glorious, how merciful God is for the rest of eternity to His people. I think we'll finally understand the mercies of God when we get to glory. We're never going to get over it. Unless the Lord saves us from it, I don't think we will ever not say, I should not be here. I should not be here. I should not be here. If it had not been for Him as we point to Christ, 
we would say, I should not be here had it not been for Christ. That's what God is doing. He's helping us understand the greatness of His glory toward His people. And He's doing that on behalf of vessels of mercy. I want you to notice two other, two other phrases and then we'll be done. Because I don't want to leave them. If I leave them hanging, these guys are going to jump all over me. You got this word prepared. Notice at the end of verse 23, He, God, prepared beforehand for glory. It's in the verb tense of being aorist. It's the action of God. Active. It's what God has done. Again, do you know why you're here, Chris? God. You know why you're here, Rob? One reason. One man. It's not you. You know why I'm here? Boy, it's got nothing to do with me. It's those who have been mercied, who God has prepared beforehand for glory. We're back in Romans 8 now. But you know what I find extremely fascinating? Because you look back up in verse 22, you got the word prepared, but it's not preceded by the subject of he. It's just hanging out there all by itself. And it says prepared for destruction, the vessels of wrath who have been prepared for destruction. Completely different verb, completely different verb tense. And depending on your theology, even some of my reformed brothers like to pull this out and put this where they want it and say this right here is God is preparing them for wrath. It doesn't say that. In fact, it's in a passive voice. Paul words it, the master of words changes the word so you and I will scratch our heads over it. Who has prepared these people for wrath? God, I can't argue with that. Themselves, I can't argue with that. And on and on we argue and Paul's like, I left it there for a purpose. Do you know why? Because it's your responsibility to repent and believe. You want to hang on to your sin? Go right ahead. Play that role. But you cannot forget that God is a God of mercy. You want to ignore Him? You want to continue to turn away from Christ? Go ahead. But you cannot ignore the fact that God is a God of mercy. And Paul's not going to hang vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He's not going to hang that 100% on the Lord. He just leaves it out there for you to wrestle with in your own heart. You know where you'll be? Well, you're responsible. And you're like, how can you even say that? Because Paul's about to say that. In fact, we'll get into that next week. You're responsible to repent and believe. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought God mercied who He wanted mercy and hardened. He does. And you're responsible too. And I cannot explain the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. I've just never heard it in a way that satisfied my soul. And I've read, literally, there's no telling how much about it. And I still can't explain it to you. But I can teach and preach it from the text because it's in there. But listen, you don't have to worry about that because you've been mercied by God. It's not even a question you ought to wrestle with. And because you've been mercied by God, because you know the name, because you've given your life to Him, shouldn't our lives look like His? Shouldn't we walk about around in repentance and faith? 
Shouldn't worship be the highlight of the week? Let me come back to worship for just a second. Really, I've got to ask you to do this. I've got to encourage you to be a part of worship every week. Really? And you've been mercied by God? How does that work? I don't understand that. I don't understand that. But that's who we are. If we would but realize that we've been mercied, I mean truly, if you would realize you've been mercied, living your life in Christ is easy. Because you realize He's done everything on your behalf. Let's pray.